LinkedIn presents. Hey, folks. Starting next Thursday, we will be bringing you a fresh batch of new episodes. And boy, are you in for a treat. In the coming weeks, you'll hear from artificial intelligence pioneer Stuart Russell about where AI is headed and whether we'll be able to control it. Our curator, Susan Cain, will speak with two authors who've written a groundbreaking book about the power of art to transform your physical and mental health. And the great Michael Lewis will tell us about his forthcoming book, Going Infinite, an intimate account of the rise and utterly catastrophic fall of FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried, sure to be one of the most talked about books of the season. But until then, we're bringing you one more from our archives. You're about to hear my conversation with cognitive scientist turned professional poker player turned decision strategist Annie Duke about her recent book, Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. In case you missed it, or even if you didn't, we wanted to share it again in the hope that it might inspire you to quit something that's holding you back. Enjoy. It's 11.30 in the morning on May 10th, 1996, and Lou Kosicki is within striking distance of the summit of Mount Everest. When he gets to the top, he will capture the final prize in a goal he's been chasing for years. He'll be able to say that he's climbed the highest mountain on every continent. But there's a problem. Right now, Lou isn't moving. He's stuck above 28,000 feet behind a group of climbers who are making excruciatingly slow progress. There's a saying in mountain climbing, speed is safety. Stay still for too long and you're dead, literally. Lou is in what's known as the death zone, an altitude where the air is too thin for anyone to stay alive for an extended period. Supplemental oxygen can buy you time, but still, you've got to move fast, a lot faster than Lou is moving right now and time is running out. When Lou left camp 13 hours ago, his expedition leader, a seasoned mountaineer named Rob Hall, told him that today's turnaround time is 1 p.m. That means no matter where he is on the mountain, when the clock strikes one, he has to head back down. Now, as he inches his way forward, Lou starts doing the math in his oxygen-deprived brain. I looked at my watch and I had a sick feeling inside of myself. This is the way I was feeling. I was feeling sick at that point because I knew, I knew it was impossible to get there by the 1 p.m. turnaround time. And yet, the summit is so close. If he gives up, he thinks to himself, he'll regret it for the rest of his life. So he takes another step forward. My heart was beating so hard. I felt like it was going to jump right out of my chest. I was almost shaking as I was struggling inside of myself with, what am I going to do? Am I going to keep going because I'm so close, or am I going to turn around? Lou isn't the only climber wrestling with that decision. The same thoughts are running through the head of John Tasky. And I thought, if I keep going now, I'll be out of oxygen, get to the summit, but I'll be coming back down to the South Col in the dark and without oxygen and more tired than I am now. The risks were escalating. But like Lou, John's no quitter. He spent years training for this day. And for what? To give up with less than 700 vertical feet left to climb? But when he sees expedition leader Rob Hall heading toward him, John makes up his mind. I said to him, Rob, I'm going down. And I could even see behind his oxygen mask, he was visibly disappointed, probably for me, because he loved to get people to achieve their goal of getting to the top. But he said, it's your call, pal. I'll see you back at the South Col. And that was the last time uh, I saw Rob alive. Rob ignored his own turnaround time and pushed on to the summit, arriving just after 2 p.m. He then waited a full hour for another climber to arrive. They tried to descend, but ran out of oxygen. The guy Rob was climbing with collapsed. Rob couldn't get him down, but he wouldn't leave him either. They both died. Meanwhile, John and Lou, they abandoned their quest for the summit and lived. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, how to quit when you're ahead. 
When we tell stories of adversity, we tend to focus on those who go for broke. The climbers who continued up the mountain, who ignored the turnaround time, who persevered and then met a tragic fate, they're the heroes of John Krakauer's renowned bestseller, Into Thin Air. And John and Lou, the climbers who followed the rules, who turned around and lived. They demonstrate so clearly why quitting is a really good thing to do sometimes. But yet, we don't even notice them because it's, you know, meh. It's not, it's not interesting to us. It's not really the stuff movies are made of. That's behavioral scientist Annie Duke. In her new book, Quit, she asks, why don't we celebrate quitters? Why do we live in a world where making the right decision, the decision to walk away, isn't celebrated as an act of heroism, but dismissed as a sign of failure? The problem, Annie says, isn't purely cultural, it's psychological. We are cognitively biased to want to gut things out, whether it's a bad relationship, a crappy job, or a bid for the summit of Mount Everest. But here's the thing. In the long run, making smart decisions about when to quit is what separates those who succeed from those who don't. Annie hasn't just studied the power of quitting as a scientist, she's seen it up close. For 18 years, she was a professional poker player, and it turns out that the single biggest difference between pros and amateurs is how often they fold. We're gonna talk about her poker days in this episode. We'll also discuss what most people get wrong about grit, the problem with equating perseverance and success, and how quitting can make your life, your career, and your relationships better. Annie is brilliant, funny, a great storyteller. I think you'll come away from this conversation, as I did, with a whole new appreciation for the power of quitting. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Annie Duke, thank you for being with us today on the Next Big Idea podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I hope I can live up to the introduction. <laughs> no small, no small challenge. Um, Annie, I, I was speaking some months ago with a, a leading literary agent who represents many famous authors who've written these wonderful books about the intersection of science and how we can be better at our lives. And she said to me, when you get to know these authors, you realize that most of them are solving problems in writing their books. They're solving problems in their own lives. Daniel Pink has, has put this another way. He says, research is me-search. So you have this wonderful new book out, Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. What is your personal relationship with quitting? And do you think you've made good decisions in your life about when to walk away? Oh, gosh. You know, that's such an interesting question. I hadn't really pondered that. But like, if someone told me, oh, you wrote the book because you've actually quit a lot of things in your life and you were trying to make yourself feel better about it, I would be like, well, maybe that's true. I've quit a lot of stuff in my life. I've bounced around from one thing to the other a lot. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is that we have this very, like, we just have a very negative view of quitting. You know, we're like, quitters never win, winners never quit. So now you've got me thinking, like, I mean, I'm susceptible to that negative view of quitting also, because I'm a human being. And I have spent a lot of my life in some sort of like, you know, self-flagellation or something or berating myself, thinking like, oh, like, um, I'm so capricious, you know, I'm unfocused. I, I really like shiny objects and I gravitate toward them. I do have this narrative that goes, you know, sort of where I'm thinking myself about like all the quitting I've done in my life is a bad thing. So now, like, now I'm questioning myself. I'm having an existential crisis over here. <laughs> that, that maybe that's actually why I wrote the book was to sort of explore quitting in order to think about that narrative that I say to myself. I mean, if you want, I'm happy to tell you the reason why I thought I wrote the book. Interesting. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. So why did you, why, before this moment, why did you think you wrote the book? Well, before this moment, why I thought I wrote the book was that 
you know, as a poker player, you really learn that quitting's incredibly important. You think about it a lot, yeah, right? Like, yeah. when do you fold? And how do I become better at folding than other people? I know that sounds sort of counterintuitive, but that's actually the thing that distinguishes great poker players from amateurs yes. more, more than yeah. anything else is their ability to fold in situations where other people can't. So that was always something that I was kind of thinking about is this idea of cutting your losses. Um, it's just a really important concept in poker. And the narrative around grit, I think, is so powerful in a way that, by the way, Angela Duckworth wouldn't endorse, you know, because if you read Angela yeah. Duckworth's book, Grit, which is so obviously popular and a great book, I recommend people read it. What she's saying is you shouldn't quit things just because they're hard, because there's lots of hard things that are worthwhile. What you need to do is actually explore a bunch of stuff to find the thing that you're passionate about and then have the ability to stick with that even when it's hard. Notice that there's a lot of nuance in what I just said, because she's not mm -hmm, telling you mm -hmm. just stick to things. Yeah. You know, stick to it and you're going to succeed. She's not telling you to stick to things that aren't worthwhile. She's saying you have to be able to withstand the hard times, you know, in order to eventually be successful at things that are worthwhile. But I don't think that that's the way that people see it, you know, sort of in the popular mind, right? When they see that, what they think is grit is good. If I'm gritty, I'm going to succeed. And, and if I'm a quitter, it's bad because grit is a virtue. It's a thing that adds character. It builds character even. And that it's a signal of success. It's a signal that I'm tough. It's a signal that I'm reliable, all of these things. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I was honestly a little frustrated with what I think the reading of grit, like the way that that's been distorted. Because, you know, as a poker player, I know that you just, you shouldn't stick to things. Because the thing about grit that people need to realize is two things. One is grit does get you to stick to hard things that are worthwhile, but it also gets you to stick to hard things that aren't worthwhile. And that's yes, a yes. big problem because you shouldn't spend your time on things that aren't worthwhile. It sacrifices your ability to spend time on things that are. So that's the first thing for people to understand. And then the second thing that people really need to understand is that the decision about whether to persevere or grit it out and the decision about whether to quit are the exact same decision, mm -hmm, right? Exactly. If, I, if I choose yeah. to persevere, I'm choosing not to quit. If I choose to quit, I'm choosing not to persevere. And so it's not so much like one is good as one is bad. It's when should you stick to things and when should you quit them? And I just felt like that was a message that needed to get out there. I felt like people needed to hear the other side of the conversation because yeah. I think that when you hear both sides of the conversation, it just makes the conversation better. Yeah, yeah. Now, but I, now I'm thinking it was just an existential crisis. So I just, <laughs> I just told you why I wanted to write it. But I'm pretty sure it's just an existential crisis now. Well, you know, it it could be both. I mean, it, it's I'm you know, as an early reader of your book, I, I I'm completely convinced by the argument that we as a culture have a sort of distorted lens where we just you know, we revere perseverance to a degree that's bananas. I mean, to a degree that we yeah. we that when people persevere to the point that they kill themselves, that they die in the process of persevering, we think of them as heroes. And when people yeah, are like hero, that intelligent, was right? It, 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 I mean, it it really is a blind spot. Uh, you've you've convinced at least one reader that there's okay. that we have we have a collective blind spot. But I also think your own story is interesting because, to some degree, I mean, you've had this you know wildly successful career as a top poker player, winning millions of dollars, and now as a top writer, you started off as an academic uh, on a path to great success in academia, and it was somewhat random chance that knocked you off that path and knocked you into a career as a professional poker player, right? So, so, so you kind of somewhat accidentally stumbled into this realization that, that wow, the quitting uh, of your academic path, which was somewhat involuntary, ended up having a wonderful upside for you. So, you know, a lot of times that we quit, we do it voluntarily, right? But, but there's lots of times when we're forced to quit. Uh, we might get fired from our job or we're in a relationship and our partner chooses to end it, even though we would want to continue. You know, you get an injury and, uh, you know, you had an amazing career in the NFL and then you have a career ending injury and you're forced to quit. And for me, I had a similar situation where I was forced to quit or at least take a leave where I, I'd done five years of work at the University of Pennsylvania and I was getting my PhD in cognitive science. And five years, you know, I was already 
I was at the end of the road there. Like I had already done the work for my dissertation and I was going out on job talks actually because I fully intended to become an academic. But I was struggling with an illness at the time, a, a stomach illness that had been chronic. It was it had been bad for many months. But I was trying to sort of power through the whole thing to get through my job talks because, you know, I was, I was trying to get a tenure track position. And the illness became acute and I actually ended up in the hospital for two weeks. So it happened to be right during the time that I was supposed to go out for my job talks. So I needed to take time off, which I did. But it wasn't my choice. Like I had to. So I took time off and then I needed to do something. I just had constraints on what I could do to make money because I needed money. I couldn't start a new career because I was planning to go back to academics. So I didn't want to do something which was like a new career. I couldn't do something that was nine to five because I I didn't really know from day to day whether I was going to feel okay. And I didn't really want to do something where I was like taking a job, which I was then going to have to like quit when I went back to academics. So I just sort of felt like I had constraints. And, you know, in talking to my brother, he's the one who actually suggested that I play poker because it kind of fit all of my needs, right? Like I could play when I wanted to. (laughs) I didn't have a boss. Uh, and I could leave at any time with no harm to anybody else uh, and just go back to academics. And that's how I actually ended up playing poker was it was something I was going to do in the meantime while I was recovering. And obviously, the meantime turned into a long time, actually about 18 years. But, you know, I point out that I I think that the thing that I learned from that was that quitting's okay. And it shouldn't take you being forced into the choice to do it for you to consider doing it more. Because the thing that we don't really realize is that when we're doing things, we're not exploring all the other opportunities that are available to us. You know, that moment where I had to quit actually caused me to explore poker as an option. And it turned out that for a long time, that was the main thing that I did. And I think that I actually learned that lesson pretty well and kept going. And interestingly enough, if we go back to my existential crisis, like, because we're just going to make this a therapy session now. (laughs) Good. I spent a good part of my life really beating myself up for that, right? Like that I didn't stick with academics, you know, that I had let down my advisors, right? Like so these are all the things that we tell ourselves under these circumstances, that my advisors had put so much time and effort into me, and now I was letting them down. And I felt like I, I was a failure, that I had left af- academics. But first of all, when, you know, number one, when I reconnected with my advisor, it turned out she was just really happy for me. And she sort of articulated that, like, you didn't waste anything. Like, we just wanted you to go and be happy. Um, And I think that was an important thing that I learned. And then the second thing was that I'm back in academics now. I'm at the University of Pennsylvania. I teach exec ed at Wharton. I work with Phil Tetlock and Barb Mellers in their lab. I work with Marie Schweitzer in his lab and I'm doing research. And, you know, that's a thing that we also forget is that the things that you quit, you can also, you know, you can often come back to. And the way that we think that other people are viewing our quitting is usually not at all what's true. So, you know, I think that that's also been helpful for my ability to sort of like move around a little bit, but I think there's just really important lessons in there. Like don't wait to be forced to quit in order to learn all these lessons. Like think about them before you have to. And and I think that may be even more true today than it was decades ago, that we can have, like when I'm talking to my kids, I have more this view that like, the question isn't what career will you have, it's, it's what career is plural will you have? Yeah. And in, and in what sequence do you want to have them, right? I mean, like we live at a time where you can do a lot of different things. And, and actually that, you know, the cross-pollination can be really empowering. And, and, and this happened for you in the sense that as it turns out, poker is this perfect laboratory for social science and studying human behavior. You could see it almost as a lucrative, was it 18 years or something of field science of, right. <laughs> of, of, of yeah. social science, right? Well, oh, I, I mean, it absolutely informs the way that I think about these things. I think that I have an experience that I think a lot of cognitive scientists don't, which is in this environment that poker is, which is really high stakes, fast paced decision-making under uncertainty. You know, it's when we're under these conditions of extreme uncertainty that cognitive bias gets amplified. So, you know, I talk in the book about sunk cost bias, which goes along with this idea of waste, where Mm -hmm. we make this mistake when we're thinking about quitting, that we take into account the resources that we've already spent in deciding whether to 
continue, whether to grit it out, whether to spend more. And that's a mistake because what you should care about is it worthwhile to continue going forward. So like a simple example of that would be if you own a stock and you've lost money in it, you're much more likely to hold on to it than if you approach that stock fresh and thought about whether it was worthwhile to keep to, to buy it on that day. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yep. So, you know, the way to think about it is if you wouldn't buy it today, you shouldn't hold it today. Exactly. But instead what happens, and you hear people say this all the time, is I can't sell it because I need to get my money back. So that's like a perfect example of some cost because it's like, well, you can't get those dollars back. You already spent them. The question is, what can you do going forward? Where should your next dollar go? Should it stay in the stock or should it move? And if you would not buy the stock today, then you should sell it and move the money to a stock that you would buy. But we don't do that. And it's not just about like stock. It's like, People are in a bad relationship and you say, why don't you leave? And it's like, I put so much time into it already. Or, you know, they're staying in a job that's clearly making them unhappy. And you say, why? Well, you know, then I'll have wasted all of my time here. You know, what about all my training for this job? And it's like, but you're miserable. If you knew this was the situation you were going to be in, you wouldn't take the job today. So, you know, that's the sunk cost fallacy. So we really understand the sunk cost fallacy from like a scientific standpoint, But when you're sitting at a poker table, you get a different view on it because you literally hear a player say, I had too much in the pot to fold. Mm -hmm. And it's like, buddy, that money's already in the pot. You have to protect the money that's in your stack. Yeah, exactly. Because the next chip you put in better be money good. (laughs) But we all fall for this thing, the sunk cost fallacy. So this is just sort of the situation that we're in. And when you're at a poker table, You just see it so clearly because they basically say the biases out loud every single Mm -hmm. session that you play. So I think it just like gave me a different view on it, right? Where I could feel it so deeply because I saw it every day so deeply in these high stakes situations with people who knew better. And and as you point out in the book, professionals, professional poker players fold 75 to 85% of the time amateurs fold less than half the time right right so there's a there's a really clear distinction and and this and you see this this also this difference in how we think about failure and quitting at the highest levels of entrepreneurship you know venture capital investors and and I I love your comment we we had a great conversation with uh Maria Konnikova who who had yeah. already convinced us that life is not chess it's poker right this is we live in this world with incomplete information. We have to make bets with with incomplete information. We're, we're sort of at the mercy of powers that are out of our control. But over time, all the good luck and bad luck balances out right. if, if we're disciplined about our decision-making. That, that's exactly right. And, you know, the, the problem is that, you know, I mean, I use this phrase throughout the book saying, our decisions are the worst when we're in it. And what does that mean? This is something from Daniel Kahneman. This is the way Mm -hmm. that he talks about it, which is when you're facing down the decision, that's when you're going to be at your most irrational because all of what you just talked about, that short-termism, is going to be at its height, right? It's going to be at its worst, right? I don't want to feel bad now. I don't want to have wasted my money now. I don't want to feel like I failed now. One of the things that I say in the book that, you know, where I, I say, like, one of the things that causes it to be really hard to quit is... That's the moment where you go from failing to having failed. So notice when you're failing, there's still a chance you could succeed. Mm -hmm. But once you quit, that's done, right? You have to take the loss. Or as Richard Thaler would say, you have to now close the account in the losses. And that's a thing we don't like to do. And so instead of thinking about how do I reach my long-term goals? How do I make sure in the long run that I'm getting the best results possible? which is clearly going to involve quitting the bad stuff. I want to quit the bad stuff and stick to the good stuff. Instead, we get caught up in the moment in this totally short-term thinking of, I just don't want to go from that moment of failing to having failed. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, Andy's going to tell us how an entrepreneur named Stuart Butterfield made a decision to quit that shocked his colleagues, alarmed his investors, and turned him into a billionaire.
The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. It's so extraordinary that we make heroes even out of people who take perseverance to, uh, to a degree that's almost suicidal. You know, but of course, on the other hand, the stories of perseverance that stick in our heads are all these sort of heroic tales of like, you know, Dr. Seuss's first book was rejected 27 times. It was the 28th <laughs> time he submitted it that it was accepted. Or like, you know, Sir James Dyson spent 15 years and he created over 5,000 failed vacuum prototypes, right? It was the 5,127th prototype that became the first bagless vacuum cleaner and turned Dyson into a billionaire, right? And of course, Edison is, has a lot of the most famous quotes about perseverance. Uh, and so we hear these stories, and, and what we take from it is, I need to be grittier. What, what do you say to that, to that response? So let me, let me start just at the basic level. What You just told me a story that told me that Dyson quit a lot. True. Because he didn't stick with, he made a prototype, and didn't, he didn't stick with it. He tried a different way to do it, right? So like, we, yep. we need to understand like a lot of, you know, you have to think about quitting in different ways. And some of it is like, you know, a lot of the great success stories in startups are are huge. Like, you know, they started off as one thing or developing one kind of product and they totally rejected it and went and developed another one. And that's what ended up working. So let's not get on the, the overall level of just like stick to everything and you'll succeed. Like you have to stick to the right things. And you think about what are the different ways to execute on the goal. Maybe the goal is to make a great vacuum cleaner because you hate your vacuum cleaner, but there's different ways that you can attack that problem. You know, you want to stick with your company and you have a particular product, but that doesn't work. So you switch to a different product. Those are all actually examples of quitting. So let's just be really mm -hmm, clear mm -hmm. that whenever we stop doing something to do something else, it's quitting. But the other thing that I think is so important, just kind of on a more macro level, is just because someone has succeeded at something by persevering, it doesn't mean that if you persevere, you'll succeed. We, we need to not exactly make it we need to not go in both directions so anybody who's ever been successful at something has stuck to it but that doesn't mean if you stick to something that you'll succeed so you know and i think that that's the thing that we need to remember so yeah. there's something called you know survivorship bias and what you're describing to me is survivorship mm -hmm. bias yes, and the thing yes. is that it's true like you you may be doing something that has a very small probability of succeeding and a bunch of people are doing it. And then you find the one person who succeeds. Um, and then you look at that and say, oh, well, then I should you know, keep going at everything. And the answer to that is no. It's an expected value problem. So what do I mean by that? You have to think about what is it that I'm trying to achieve? What are my goals? What are my values? Make some estimate of the chances that you'll actually be able to succeed given the cost that you'll have to bear. And then decide whether that's worth it. So I'm sure that, that that's what Dyson was doing. It's like he was really passionate about it uh, and he was going to keep going. And I'm guessing that even if he failed, he was fine with that. But he really wanted, you know, he had a passion for making vacuum cleaners. So maybe that made him really happy. And what he was sacrificing by spending the time on that or the resources on that and not being able to spend the time and resources on other opportunities was fine for him. I mean, I assume he wasn't starving and he wasn't negatively impacting his family and other things that he valued. And I don't know what his value equation is, was, but it's a question of, is it worthwhile enough for me to keep going? Well, and, and success stories retroactively select for stories of persistence, right? I mean, there are undoubtedly many Dyson types, you know, who, who attempt something 5,000 times and it does, you know, it doesn't necessarily work, but it's, it's, you know, so it strikes me that perseverance is necessary, but not sufficient and figuring out how to be persevering about the right things, right. Is, is the critical, the critical distinction and just sort of, I mean, categorically revering perseverance of all, all the time is not a smart strategy. I was really moved by this example of Stuart Butterfield. 
he was building this game called Glitch, a world-building game that he described as Dr. Seuss meets Monty Python meets Borges, <laughs> which uh, yeah, yeah, a, a yeah. game you couldn't win, right? And and um, but the decision he had all these sort of data points that it was the time to shut down the business, but it was still an incredibly hard decision. He still had, I think, six million in cash in the bank, and mm-hmm. most people around him did not see that it was that it was time to to pull stakes. But this is exactly the decision most people don't make, right? It's a hard, it's a really hard decision to make. Yeah. So, so I think Stuart Butterfield is like a total hero. So Stuart Butterfield actually was trying to make a multiplayer, massive online cooperative world building mm-hmm. game called Game Never Ending. He loved the idea of like how the internet created like cooperation and he was really passionate about this. So he launches the game and critics like love it and venture capitalists love it. He gets like Andreessen Horowitz um, Mm -hmm, invested in mm -hmm. it, Excel invested in it. Like these are really big names in venture capital. So he's got, as you said, lots of money in the bank. Um, And he launches it. And after a while, they get about 5,000 really diehard users. So obviously, the diehard users are the ones that you can monetize, right? Because they're they're now paying for the game. Um, And so that looks pretty good. But the the issue was that somewhere around 95% of the people who visited the game, who actually came to play the game, played for like seven minutes and left and then never returned. Okay, so mm-hmm, that that's a little mm-hmm. bit of a problem yeah. because you have to obviously get the game in front of a lot of people to try it in order to create these diehard users. They all kind of recognize the problem that you're not converting a super high percentage into into these diehard users. So they decide to, you know, with the investors and and with his co-founders, they decide to like do this big marketing push. And the marketing push actually turns out to be amazing, like growth of New users, it's like something like six or seven percent week over week during this time period. Uh, This is, I think, 2012. And they get to November, the last week of the marketing push, and they literally have the best week they've ever had. And Sunday night of that weekend, Stuart Butterfield can't sleep. Hmm. And that morning, he wakes up and he sends an email to his co-founders and investors. And it says something to the effect of, I woke up this morning with the dead certainty that Glitch was over. Okay, so that's weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, yep. right? Yeah, like, totally. Ca- cash in the bank, uh, uh, like passionate, engaged users, very hard decision to make. So- you know, obviously, like the investors and the co-founders were like, what's the deal? Like, we just had our best week ever. Basically, what he said was he realized what was bothering him was that in order to actually get to break even, you would have to sustain the growth that they had experienced over the six-week marketing push. You would have to sustain it. And even then, you would only get to break even in 31 weeks. And so at that point, he just realized, like, I love the game, but not enough people are willing to play it a lot. And so we should shut it down. Here's how he described it to Reed Hoffman in the Masters of Scale podcast. And you quote this in the book. We have a clip. But man, that is, it is so hard because the job of a CEO is often just to come up with a story that enough people believe that you can make something happen in the world. Maybe you have to convince investors and you have to convince the press and you have to convince potential employees and you have to convince customers. And I'd done a lot of convincing of people, you know, a lot of convincing of people to come work on this project, to leave whatever thing they were working on before, uh, quit their job, um, get paid poorly in exchange for equity. It's something that just didn't work. Let's just stop the story there because that's a huge success. Here's somebody who realized that despite having $6 million in the bank, despite feeling an obligation to his employees, despite feeling an obligation to his investors or his co-founders, that he would be wasting their time. Not just his own, but he would be wasting their time to continue. Because mm-hmm. think about it, like, for example, from the employee's perspective, right? They're obviously working for, like, basically no money and mostly equity. And at the point that he determined that their equity wasn't worthwhile, that it was not going to, you know, win them a whole bunch, he realized it wasn't worth their time to be working on on Glitch anymore and that he ought to free them up so that they could go work on something that was going to be amazing and was going to change the world and was going to be incredible where their equity would actually be worth a lot. 
So think about that perspective shift, right? Like how hard that is. Because what you hear from people in these situations is I'll be letting my employees down. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what he realized was, no, that's the wrong frame. If I keep going with something that I am dead certain isn't going to succeed, that's when I'm wasting their time. And that's the moment that I'm letting them down. Now, what's interesting here is that idea of free yourself up to be able to go do something better, I think really comes home when we hear the coda to Stuart Butterfield's story, which is uh, two days later, he had launched a new product. What is that product, you might ask? Well, in order to make it easier for employees to talk to each other internally, they had developed a communication tool within Glitch, which was really like, it kind of combined the best pieces of like email and instant messaging. It allowed you to attach stuff to messages and you could record it for like company logs and that kind of thing. Like, so it was sort of, it was like this easy way to take all the best of like, texting and email. And so at this point, he sort of said, hmm, I'm going to go look at that. And maybe that's something that I can develop. Now, when they used it at Glitch, it didn't even have a name, but he said, okay, maybe I'll develop that. But now I have to actually, you know, come up with a name for it. And the name he came up with was Searchable Log of All Company Knowledge, which is an acronym for Slack. And that then comes out of this. It's an amazing story. And Slack, of course, as we we use it at the Next Big Idea Club, we love it. Recently acquired by Salesforce for $28 billion. That's um, right. Right? So it was a huge, huge win. And what was extraordinary was that all those years of working on Glitch, they didn't see Slack, the, the, the product they, they were using, the tool they were using internally as a potential opportunity. They were blind to it. It wasn't until they made the decision to quit that all of a sudden, you know, looking around, they said, wait a second, look at this hiding yeah, in plain I sight. Think, I think that drives home the opportunity cost problem so much, right? Mm -hmm, Which is mm -hmm. when we're doing something and we're sticking to it, we're myopic, right? Like that's the only thing that we see is the path that we're on. We're not actually actively exploring yes. other paths that we might be pursuing that could be better than the thing that we're doing, right? Like, we just stick to it no matter what. I mean, this is this problem of this idea of like grit is a virtue, like absent any context, just stick to the mm -hmm, thing you're doing mm -hmm, because yeah. we lose sight of the other things that we could be doing. And, and I'm not saying that that means you should just jump from thing to thing, right? Or like the next shiny object, which was the thing that I always beat myself up about, right? Mm -hmm, but yeah, that you yeah. should be exploring. You should always have these exploratory lines because you never know what you're not seeing. And a lot of times it takes quitting to be able to go and look. I mean, in the simplest way that you can think about it, it's like when you have a job, you're usually not exploring other jobs. It's not until you quit or you at least make the decision that you're going to quit or that you get fired that you start to explore other all the other things that you're doing. And how many times when you do that and you find another position, do people, you always hear people say, I should have done that six months earlier. Of course, yeah. Right, because then all of a sudden they realize, look at all the opportunities I was missing out on. I could have created Slack, but I was spending my time on Glitch. Yeah, right. Yeah. And you always hear, "Why didn't I do that sooner?" Right now, I see that I was missing out on all, all these opportunities. Well, the problem is because when you're in it, you're not looking for the opportunities. So of course you can't see it because you com become completely myopic. Right. Sa same is true in relationships, right? It's it's the friend who's always complaining about the boyfriend or girlfriend, and then they finally break up and everybody says, yeah, we've been waiting for you to do that for for many, many t months, <laughs> for years. You know? And then uh, why why did you tell me sooner? Yeah. So, yeah. So I think that that's actually really interesting. So it's two sides of the same coin. So side one is you feeling like, why didn't I do that sooner? Side two is what you just said, which is, why didn't you tell me? Right. Okay. Sure, so, sure. so this is a problem that I talk about, like this difference between being nice and being kind, yes. right? And I, I think that we confuse the two. So I think a lot of our, you know, interactions with other people are again this different. You know, what's your time horizon, right? Are you trying to make someone feel good in the moment, or are you are trying to help them in the long run? And I think that we don't want to take the pain or make the other person feel pain. Mm -hmm. with what mm -hmm. we might want to yeah. say. So instead we like sugarcoat it or we don't actually tell them the truth. 
So they're saying something about their their relationship, like, no, your partner's great. Or maybe you don't even talk about it and they just don't point out that you shouldn't be in that relationship anymore or that job or whatever it is, right? And why? Because they're you're always trying to spare someone's feelings. You know, you don't want to say, look, you should really stop trying to do whatever you're doing because I have to tell you you're really bad at it. <laughs> or yeah. stop pursuing this project. It's not going well, you know. Andrew Wilkinson pointed this out that he he invests in a, a bunch of companies and there was a particular CEO I think that he had and the CEO wasn't doing a good job and all his friends could see it but nobody would tell him and then when he finally got around to firing the CEO everybody was like oh yeah you should have done that a year ago I've known that the whole time okay so why didn't you tell me that? <laughs> like so, I had yeah. a business that relied on the CEO doing a good job. Think about what this cost him. The CEO is running the company. This is my capital that's invested in this company. And you're telling me that you knew for a long time that the CEO wasn't doing a good job. And when he asked him about it, they said, well, I didn't want to, I didn't want to hurt your feelings, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I thought it'd make you feel bad to think that you had hired someone bad and I felt bad and I didn't want to make, okay, but look at the disservice that you did. You know, if you really want to be a great friend to somebody, tell them the truth so that they can actually achieve their goals in the long run. And if you want to know how much you really need this for yourself as friends who would tell you the truth, but also it's really good to tell other people the truth, just know that I thought about this concept. Like this concept ended up in the book because of a conversation that I had with Daniel Kahneman, Nobel laureate. And what he said to me is everybody needs a good quitting coach, you know? And I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. what do you mean by that? And he said this, he goes, they need someone who will tell them the hard things that they need to hear, right? When they can't see it for themselves, Mm -hmm. because we can never see these things for ourselves. We can't see that we're supposed to stop. It's hard for us to see that we're not supposed to keep going up the mountain anymore. It's hard for us to see when our startup is failing or the job we're in isn't working out and we should just stick it out. It's hard for us to distinguish between hard things that are worthwhile and hard things that are not worthwhile. But other people can generally see that much more clearly. And so he told me, like, he gets involved in research projects all the time that really aren't worth pursuing. Of course he does. And that he himself has a quitting coach. And that quitting coach is Richard Thaler, who is also a Nobel laureate. Now, would that we all had Nobel laureates as our quitting coaches. (laughs) The lesson here is more like if you're a Nobel laureate whose Nobel Prize is literally in good decision-making, like the mistakes that we made, <laughs> yeah. you know, and you feel like you need someone yeah. to see it you, from the outside. You still outside need third parties, yeah. Right, because you're going to get trapped in all of these things as well. Like, I'm pretty sure if Daniel Kahneman needs a quitting coach, I sure need a quitting coach. Absolutely. And I think your language in the book was, we need people who love us, who aren't afraid to hurt our feelings, you know? And, and I would say that one of the things I've noticed in as I've gotten older, I'm in my 50s, is is that on the one hand, we need to be more honest with our friends. On the other hand, we need to cultivate friendships that have these qualities, right? And we need to say to our friends, tell me what I don't want to hear. You know, we you have I, I think we have to actively cultivate that channel of communication uh, so that it runs freely. Well, getting back to if we could for a moment to Stuart Butterfield, because I just I just yes. find the story so extraordinary. He's, you know, we only know that story to some degree because Slack ended up becoming That's a correct. twenty-eight billion dollar company, right? Because we don't tell the stories of, of kind of making hard quitting decisions. He, he's he's a quitting ninja because he did the same thing previously with Flickr, right? Which was which was yeah. born out of another another gaming company, which he shut down. So I'm like, as you say, props to Stuart Butterfield because that's yeah, no, he's like know. he's like a quitting god. Totally, and 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 I have to tell you, Annie, that I am not. Stuart Butterfield may not need your book. The rest of us do, because um, <laughs> i <laughs> i had I had my own experience of this, which is I in the in my late twenties in the nineteen nineties, I started a website called Nerve dot com, and it mm-hmm. was a it, it was a great cultural success. It was you know translated into five languages. We did a TV show with HBO. We sold millions of copies of books. But then in the two thousands, it just sort of went sideways. And we ended up selling it for peanuts 10 years later. And when I look back on it, I just see the opportunity cost, right? All the things yeah. I could have done with those eight years. And I just didn't, it did not occur to me. I felt exactly what Stuart Butterfield describes in, in that clip. 
which is a sense of shame that I have, you know, you get stuck in this trap, as you say, where basically the harder you have to fight to get your business to work or on whatever you're, you're, you're trying to do, the more passionately you're trying to persuade everyone around you that this is, mm -hmm. you know, that this has legs and the, and the greater a betrayal it feels to, you know, uh, to give up hope. Now we ended up actually starting a birthing two other companies out of that one, which one of which was successful. So, so it's sort of, it ended up working out pretty well. It's very hard in retrospect to sort of, you know, retroactively analyze your life and say, oh, well, I, I should, I should have done X, Y, or Z because we are a product of our failures and successes. And it's, you know, so I, I mm -hmm. always find that difficult, but yeah, I certainly see that, that it was not, it, that, that there was a huge amount of, of, of kind of quitting shame that kept me locked. And since then, you know, I've had the pleasure of investing in companies of younger entrepreneurs and helping advising younger entrepreneurs. One of the things I've said to them is, if you're very successful, that's liberating. If you completely fail, that's liberating. But moderate success, survival, can be imprisoning, <laughs> right? You can, you can get trapped in moderate success indefinitely. I completely agree. You know, when you think about a moderate success, right? So it's really hard for us to quit things that we're losing at, mm -hmm. where it's like really yeah. obvious we should quit. So imagine how hard it is to quit something where you are winning but it's, you're not winning enough. And compared to something else you could be doing, you could be winning a lot more. And by winning, I don't just mean money. I just want to be really clear about that. Like mm -hmm. we can yes. measure winning and happiness, right? So uh, let's say that you're in a relationship and it's fine, right? It's like not terrible, but you're also not like super excited about it. Think about how hard it is to quit those situations. I mean, we see that all the time with friends, right? Like mm -hmm. where they're saying, like, I've put so much time into it. There's nothing really that wrong. I really can't leave, you know, and you hear all this stuff. And it's like, but the problem is that maybe slack is around the corner, whatever the relationship equivalent of slack is. And regardless, the other thing that you might be doing would, would probably be better. Maybe it's better for you not to be in that relationship and take that time and spend it with your friends. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. we, we don't even, we don't even consider it because the relationship's fine. Right. But like, I think that if you ask what your goals were before you went into that relationship, would you be okay if the relationship ends up being fine? I think everybody would say, no, that's not why I'm getting into the relationship. I'm looking for a relationship and trying to find my soulmate and someone who brings me joy. And I'm excited to come home to every day. You know, if I knew right now that it was going to be fine, I wouldn't start it. But once you're in it and it's fine, you can't leave. That's right. It's not cost fallacy. Right. So we we stay in bad relationships, we stay in bad jobs. And this is, and by the way, this is not just sort of speculative. Like there's this great, uh, I, I think it was Stephen Levitt uh, managed to get 20,000 people to flip a coin. And yes. <laughs> right, and, and, and to decide whether or not to leave their jobs, which which itself is just astounding, right? <laughs> get twenty thousand right. people were like, okay, flip a coin. If it's heads, you leave your job. If it's tails, you don't. And not entirely surprisingly, right? The response is people who chose to leave their jobs were much happier. Uh, what was it six months yeah, later? Yeah, so uh, yeah, I think actually, I think it's like once you once you kind of know, it's not surprising, but like going in, it is actually kind of surprising because we, we have to think about this setup, right? So yes, he, he puts up a website and basically you can go for any decision, right? So there's lots of people who go do this. Some of the decisions are small, like, you know, what should I have for dinner? <laughs> um, you know, but uh, there's big life decisions that people are going and flipping a coin for. Like, should I leave my job? Should I leave my partner? Should I move? Uh, things like that, right? So I want you to think about someone who's going and they're willing to flip a coin, a virtual coin to make this decision, obviously they're like super 50-50 on the decision. You have to be by definition, <laughs> otherwise you wouldn't go do it. So that means that in their minds, sticking it out and quitting are equal choices, right? So they're stuck in the decision. So they, they, they're feeling like this is a total toss up. So now they go and they have the virtual coin flipped. So he looks at the people who made these, this is specifically for big life decisions, and he measures their happiness after the coin flip two months and six months later. 
Now, if we think about if their judgment is correct, that it is a toss-up, then what you would expect is that half the people who chose to stay would be happier and like half the people who chose to quit would be happier. So it would even out and there wouldn't really be a difference in the groups of people who stayed and people who Mm -hmm. didn't. Sure. Okay. Uh, Because it's a toss-up, right? Yeah. But that's not what he found. He found on average, the people who quit were actually happier. So what does this tell you? What it tells you is that by the time you get to the decision that it's it's 50-50, like by the time you get yeah. to that feeling of like, I don't know what to do, it's really close, it's not actually close at all. Quitting's the clear winner. That's right. If you're on the fence, this is the thumbnail that I think, I think you offer the book. If you're on the fence, you should quit. Unless you're thinking about quitting this podcast, please don't. Because when we come back, Annie will tell you the two things you can do to change your relationship with quitting forever. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. In order to better develop our our kind of quitting muscles, in order to become more like Stuart Butterfield, it it seems like there, there are a number of specific things that we can do. You talk about setting kill criteria. Like what are the what are the takeaways both as individuals and building institutions? Like I was fascinated by the Google X example of how they build a yeah. culture, right? A, a culture that embraces failure, that is disciplined on the front end about figuring out how to be willing to to develop a quitting muscle, so to explore more options to make better decisions. What 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 are the kind of takeaways you would leave people with? Yeah, so I th- I think there's really kind of like two big ideas. Oh, yes. And this podcast is called The Next Big Idea. So there we go. Um, (laughs) That's right. We'll take two. Two is great. Yeah. So there's two big ideas. The first one we already discussed, get yourself quitting coaches. So, you know, I think part of that is you can think about that for yourself personally, but you can also think about that as leadership in an organization is that you ought to be acting as quitting coaches for people. Mm -hmm. You know, you should let Mm -hmm. them know that this is okay and let them know when the thing they're doing is no longer worthwhile. Ron Conway, who founded SB Angel, is a really big part of the book because he's an investor who encouraged a lot of his his founders to quit. When he could see very clearly that they were, you know, dead men walking or dead women walking, he would encourage them to stop, you know, to be more like Stuart Butterfield because he felt that that was his responsibility. So he really viewed himself as a quitting coach. And I think that we all need to do that and we need to get that into organizations, right? So Astro Teller, who you referred to, he's the CEO of X, which is the innovation hub at Google. And he really views himself as a quitting coach, someone whose job it is to get people to abandon ideas that aren't worth pursuing, particularly given what their particular mission statement is, basically, right? So what they're trying to do is take an idea from you know inception to commercial viability within five to 10 years. The reason why they have this five to 10 year timeline is that they figure if it's gonna happen in less than five years, someone else is probably already working on it. And if it's gonna happen in more than 10 years, then it will probably be obsolete by the time you get there. So they just have this very specific directive. They also say it has to be 10X world changing, right? It has right. to it has to have this outsized potential transformative impact for the world. And they developed, among other things, Waymo, which has now been spun out and is worth, I think, $30 billion. Right, exactly. So this is their charter is very, very specific. It's an innovation hub. So they're trying to create world changing ideas in a particular timeline. So what that means is that they have to do a lot of quitting because as Astro Teller puts it, If I can find out, having spent $2 million an idea, that it's not going to be 10x world-changing, commercially viable in five to 10 years, and I can find that out in 2 million instead of 9 million, that's a huge win. So again, notice the reframe here, because most people would say, I can't quit now because then I'll have wasted the $2 million I already put into it. Mm -hmm. And he's actually looking at it from the appropriate perspective, which is, no, I'm saving $7 million. And so he's trying to 
show people and talk about quitting and talking about the savings that you get from shutting things down early. Like the earlier you can spot it, the better off you are. And this is a culture that I think exists more broadly in the tech startup world, right? This kind of, this notion of minimum viable products, fail fast. Uh, and and it, so it's a culture that can be built both in individuals and institutions. So that's the thing that Astro Teller is so concerned about is how do you keep that innovative culture, right? And something that, that looks more like yes. an enterprise because it's bigger. Yeah. Um, and that's what he's trying to do. So that that's where I think like quitting coaches are so important. Mm-hmm. But then what goes along with that is one, how do you actually see see what you need to do and get to know fast? That's question one. And then question two is how do you actually execute on it, right? So and th- this is the thing that a quitting coach is trying to really help you with. So in terms of seeing how to get to know fast, I think Azar Teller offers, offers up like an amazing mental model, which he calls monkeys and pedestals. Oh, I love this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it, it basically goes like this. Imagine you're trying to train a monkey to juggle flaming torches while standing on a pedestal in this town square. So uh, let's say you're trying to do that. The question is, what are you supposed to do first? Are you supposed to try to train the monkey to juggle the flaming torches? Or are you supposed to build the pedestal first? And of course, like, don't build the pedestal until you know whether you can get the monkey to juggle the flaming torches. So that seems obvious as we understand it from, from that example, except that that's not the way we behave. We're pedestal builders. And if you want to know that we're pedestal builders, what's the first thing everybody says when you approach a project? What's the low-hanging fruit? Mm-hmm. Right. Let's right, tackle right. the low-hanging fruit first. Right. People like to start with the easy stuff. Let's, let's right. print some business cards. For, let, let's develop a logo. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. People do that all the time. Like I remember hearing about somebody who was starting a business and they didn't even know whether the business was going to work, but they spent $50,000 on the logo. Yeah. You know, and yeah, it's like, what? Yeah. Huh? You know, so, you know, and that happens all the time. You're designing the perfect business card. But also like within organizations, when you're approaching projects, people always say that, well, what's the low hanging fruit? Let's tackle that first. Okay. But you already know you can tackle the low hanging fruit. That's why it's low hanging. There's no point in picking any low-hanging fruit off the tree if you can't figure out that you can get to the stuff that's at the top. Don't build pedestals because you'll accumulate sunk costs and that will make it hard for you to abandon when you find out that you can't train the monkey. You will still try. You won't quit. Right. Right. Start, figure out, figure out the hard part first. Try to solve that as quickly as possible and beware of false progress. Right. And then the second big idea here is something called kill criteria, which you mentioned. Mm, yeah, yeah. And let's go back to Daniel Kahneman saying, the worst time mm-hmm. to ever make a decision is when you're in it. Okay, so what yeah. kill criteria do is they get you sort of out, out of the decision. So one of the biggest insights from Barry Staw, who, who is someone who has done a tremendous amount of research in this space of escalation of commitment, was we have the intuition that when we see the signals in the world that tell us that we ought to quit, that we will actually pay attention to them and do it, right? Like it seems obvious to us that if we were climbing Everest and a snowstorm came in, that we'd turn around. If we were going up a mountain and a fog rolled in, that we would obviously turn around. If we were running a marathon and on mile six, we broke our leg, that we would stop. But as you know from having read the book, no. <laughs> we don't. Yeah, that's astonishing. <laughs> okay. A, a lot of people a lot of people finish marathons with broken legs. It's, that was right. astounding. Like it, a, it happens all shocking. the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like all the time. It's not unusual. Yeah. So and we know that, right? Like people just stick to things. You know, we know that from Steve at Levitt, right? That people stick yeah. to things too long. We know that from the people who continued up on Everest past the turnaround time. People stick to things too long. So our intuition on this is just really, really broken. Okay, so the question is, how do we get ourselves to be better when we see those signals that we ought to walk away? How do we get ourselves to be better at actually paying attention to them and executing when we see them? And you do that by listening to what Daniel Kahneman says. Don't do it when you're in it. What does that mean you have to do? You have to do it before, right? When you start, that's when you have to do it. So Kill criteria are basically a list of what are the signals that I could be getting from the world that would tell me that I need to reevaluate this, or in some cases that would tell me just flat out that I need to walk away. It's a pre-commitment to quit 
if certain criteria aren't met. And that's liberating. It's liberating for the team and it results in results in better decisions. And, and again, uh, it makes it so that you don't have to bear going from that moment of failing to having failed. Because if you appropriately follow the kill criteria, that is now a success. So it's a way to turn quitting into a success. Like a super simple example of a kill criterion would be what I used in poker, which was a loss limit. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, when I was playing poker and I was playing in a cash game, I would decide how much money I was willing to risk that night. And if I went beyond that amount, if I lost that amount, I just walked away. You know, Gary Kasparov talks about system mindset versus outcome mindset, that you, you always have to be making mm -hmm. decisions in a way that's improving the system. You talk about decision, focusing on decision quality rather than outcome, right? That if we're good scientists, and this is what I come back to when I confront in my life, the shame of failure, which kind of drives the fear of quitting. If we can just take pride in being good scientists, sometimes the good scientist comes to the conclusion that their hypothesis was wrong, but they still did good science. Right. And, and that's, I think, to some degree, when we're, when we're building companies and living our lives and trying to, that if we can basically take pride in high quality decision making, living in a world of limited information, that that's good enough. And in the long run, results in the best outcomes. That's, that's sort of my very, very brief synopsis of what I've taken away. No, I mean, I, th I think, look, th I think that's exactly right. And I think it was incredibly well said. The outcomes are going to come in the long run. And a lot of this is really short-term thinking. And when you said, you know, that fear of failure, that shame that you feel with failure, you know, in some ways stops us from quitting. It's like, no, it, it like in all ways, it stops us from quitting. So much of it has to do with like, not just the way that we feel about ourselves, you know, internal validity, but also the way that we think that other people are going to view us. That's the yes, shame piece, yes. right? So we shame ourselves. We feel like other people are going to shame us for it. And like when I ran into my advisor, right, I felt terrible shame about having quit my program, even though I was forced to, right? I was sick, but I, then I didn't come back. So that was when I really quit. And I felt really terrible shame about it. And then when I got back in contact with her, it was like I was white knuckling, getting yelled at from her for having quit. And it was completely the opposite. It was like, oh my gosh, didn't you live a life? I'm so happy. And then we continued on with our relationship. And I just think about how sad I am that that feeling of she must hate me because I quit stopped me from having, you know, there was a period where we weren't in contact because I felt so much shame about it. Mm, sure. And it's one yeah. of the saddest things for me in my whole life mm. because she's one of the most important people to me in many ways very much a mother to me. And I'm so grateful that we got back in contact, but I am so sad that my own feeling of shame over having quit stopped us from having a relationship. You know, so I, I think that that is something that is, is so integrated into these decisions for us, you know? And, and I think it's a really important lesson to realize that we normally have it wrong. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, the sh the shame is misplaced, and that everybody's in the end has our back. And um, I'm so happy, Annie, that here at the end of our conversation, we've come to the heart of your existential crisis yeah. <laughs> that drove that drove the book. And I'm so glad that it did. I don't think it was really an existential crisis. I think I think it's really a a really brilliant and highly rational assessment of the distorted lens we all see the world through. And it's it's so helpful. And, and uh, I'm so grateful to your insights, both in the book and in this conversation. Thank you for, for being with us. Oh, well, thank you so much. This was, this was so, I mean, I guess it was fun. And I guess maybe it was a little bit of therapy for me now. And <laughs> you've made me actually view why I wrote the book in a different way that I think is really eye-opening for me. And I just, I, I really love this conversation. So thank you so much for having me. That was Annie Duke, author of the new book, Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. You can pick up a copy wherever books are sold, including in the Next Big Idea app. And while you're there, why not check out some of our book bites? These are 12-minute book summaries written and read by the authors themselves. 
Nowhere else on the planet can you hear folks like Walter Isaacson, Anne Lamott, Greg McEwen, and Arthur C. Brooks share the key insights from their books directly with you. To get started, all you have to do is download the Next Big Idea app. If you enjoyed this episode and you're looking for something else to listen to, scroll back through this feed and check out the episode titled Thinking Ahead, where our curator Malcolm Gladwell and best-selling author Stephen Johnson share their strategies for making smart decisions. If you're still listening, you must really like this show. And if you really like this show, then you may be wondering what you can do to help us out. Well, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd recommend The Next Big Idea to a friend. We'd also be chuffed if you'd leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. It really helps us get the word out. Today's episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Sound design by Mike Toda. Our executive producer is Michael Kavnat. The team at the LinkedIn Podcast Network are our quitting coaches. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.